the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Back in the 1970s, people of faith, evangelical Christians, people who were believers in a Judeo-Christian, biblically-based moral code or ethic, were referred to as the silent majority. Well, here we are, fast forward the clock 40-something years, and we're not so silent anymore, and we are definitely in what appears to be a growing minority. What has happened with this major paradigm shift where what had once been considered normative and mainstream is now all of a sudden well from one end of the continuum irrelevance to the other considered extreme well some insights on not just the shift but also how we who are most impacted by this shift can appropriately and effectively respond to it we take a look at Good faith, being a Christian when society thinks you're irrelevant and extreme. Joining me is the president of the Barna Group, a leading research and communications company that I know you're very well familiar with, Dave Kinneman. And David, thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks so much for having me, Craig. Boy, uh, certainly this election cycle is proving uh, this point to a tremendous degree. Try to have any kind of a civil conversation with people of opposing viewpoints, and you suddenly realize that we've made the paradigm shift for what had been, uh, for the most part, 2,000 years of historic Christian faith and mores, and now all of a sudden we're the ones considered the extremists. What's going on? Well, I think there's a lot of cultural changes that are taking place, but I mean, certainly the data bear that out, that a majority of Americans now uh, think that, that that religion as its practice can be part of the problem. So, for example, we find that if you were to share your faith with somebody, 60% of Americans believe that's a socially extremist thing to do. Uh, it's okay if someone came to you and asked about your faith and wanted to find out more, but if you try to actively evangelize somebody to try to talk somebody who wasn't really all that is interested in listening uh, into your faith, then, then that's viewed as extremism. So the, really the way we conclude um, in this project about what's happening is that the, the society that we live in is changing its mind about the Christian way of living, and that, that's evangelism, that's attitudes towards sex and sexuality, that's public expressions of religion. Uh, Christianity is increasingly viewed, as you mentioned, as extremist or as irrelevant, and and so Christians are really struggling with what to do with that. 
We are struggling indeed. And of course, at some levels, it's hard to uh, hard not to internalize a lot of this or, or take it uh, tremendously personally. I mean, many of us that are old enough to remember a day and an age when we were kind of in the mainstream and when expressing views, for example, of uh, believing in the moral code, sharing our faith, marital faithfulness, uh, biblical errancy kind of put us in the, in the norm. And all of a sudden now that's considered to be extremist. And in some camps, uh, things like prohibiting young women from getting an education, forcing them to dress in black and cover their faces in public and even executing people for not believing, that's, that's okay. Yeah, well, I think this is, you know, obviously you're speaking about Islam and other countries, but in the United States, what's interesting is that um, Americans are changing their mind around a lot of things. So sex and sexuality, uh, praying for people in public, public expressions of evangelism. And what we find in the research is that a majority of American Christians are feeling very pressured. Uh, in fact, a majority are feeling uh, persecuted. They use that term to describe their faith in culture today. Uh, my co-author of this book, Good Faith, and I are careful not to use the term persecution. We don't think that that's the way that pe- people in North America are currently. We're not being persecuted in the same way uh, that people around the world are being persecuted, as you mentioned, um, in, in, you know, in, in the Middle East and in other kind of contexts. Christians can face very brutal um, suppression of faith. But in, in the United States, we do think that there is a, a new level of pressure. There's certainly more skeptics, that is, people that are, that are um, you know, skeptical about faith and religion in America. Um, and that's actually the fastest growing, quote unquote, faith group is people that are religiously unaffiliated. And so I think there's a lot of things that are, that are making for a more pressure-filled environment for today's Christians. And among younger Christians, a group of people that we spend a lot of time studying here at Barna, millennials, um, people that are in their teens and young adults, they're, they're telling us that they're often afraid to speak up on behalf of their faith. They're feeling pressured. They're feeling silenced. They're feeling sidelined. And, you know, listen, we actually find good evidence that they're sticking up for their faith, that they're a bright light in the midst of a very dark generation. But those are perceptions that we have to take stock of, that they're feeling pressure, they're feeling as though their faith doesn't matter in the world. So how do we help to fortify them in their faith? And that's really what we did with this project, was to try to help Christians navigate these very difficult conversations that we're having now about faith and culture, why Christianity still matters, why we can be irrelevant and extreme, and that is actually what Jesus is calling us to be in the very best way possible. Is part of this then ultimately, David, to change up both our perspective on this and and the dialogue, because I think at the core, uh, people of faith, Bible believers, those that have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we know the relevancy of the gospel. The problem is that maybe the methodology and manner in which we have communicated that has failed in some respects to keep up with the times, and the world and culture around us has changed and changed very dramatically. Technology has a part, I think, to play in all of that, and now suddenly we feel kind of like the children of Israel, although here we are living in exile in our own country. Yeah, this theme of exile is a key theme that we bring up in our in our work, um, and I think our research really bears that out. That Christian, you know, Christianity is a ma- still a majority of Americans. People identify as Christian, uh, but the evangelical community is is really only about um, one in ten Americans, depending on how you measure it. And um, and listen, you, you know, for those of us who are very committed to Scripture and committed to Jesus, that 
Um, we're, we're really much more countercultural than we realize. And, you know, we think we're living in mostly a Christianized country, but that's just not really the case. In fact, what's happening is not just a non-Christian culture. It's a, a, it's a, it's a selfish and narcissistic culture. And sometimes, frankly, we're, as Christians, part of that. There's this document, this, we document in the book, this new rise of the self as the new sort of God of the age. And everyone's sort of looking at themselves as their own sort of spiritual judge and jury. In fact, we found that 91% of Americans say the best way to find themselves is to look within themselves. And and so that's just very counter to what Scripture tells us, that the best way to find ourselves is to discover ourselves in a truth outside of ourselves, in Scripture, in Jesus, in the traditions of the Church. And so uh, to, to find ourselves, you know, we, we really need to look at those, those external sources of truth in Jesus. Uh, but mostly our culture is changing its mind and wants to be, uh, you know, kind of its own judge and jury. And so, yeah, that's really part of what we were working on this book to do was to help Christians navigate those really difficult conversations about how to have a countercultural view towards living faithfully today. And, of course, the irony is if you look at a couple of letter, uh, levels, both in terms of sort of the, the – the governmental engagement, um, as well as the the religiosity engagement, uh, this is certainly not a new challenge from Christ's perspective, is it? I mean, he had to contend with not only Rome, but he certainly had to contend with the church of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so in terms of that engagement at that level, uh, no surprise to Jesus. It's just for us, well, this is the first time we've kind of experienced it, at least here in America, isn't it? I think that's exactly right, and I mean, I think it's a it's a it's a great perceptive question because we're dealing with several challenges, many challenges in, in American culture today. One of which is uh, the changing social landscape and the fact that, in a lot of ways, it's not just that the Bible has less authority. Almost every institution has less authority in Americans' lives than it did a decade or two decades ago. The Bible has less authority. The church has less authority. Government has less authority. Media, political leaders. Uh, we're living in a celebrity age and. That's just one indication of the sort of self-centered, narcissistic, god-of-self kind of world that we live in. But the other problems, really, if we're taking stock of this, is that, you know, the church is often very self-righteous in its orientation to the world. And if we read Scripture carefully, um, we can find that, you know, one of the bigger problems in, in the world isn't just the unrighteousness of society, isn't just the ways in which we're godless as a culture. It's about the ways the church loses its moral path towards righteousness in Christ, not through our own power. And the message of Galatians is this very thing, is that, you know, you start your you start your spiritual journey in Jesus, but then you try to perfect it through human effort. And I think that we have to be pretty hard on ourselves when we find that self-righteousness is creeping into our Christian communities. And it happens all the time. Uh, you know, every day, all of us as Christians can, can veer towards self-righteous judgmentalism, which is just as much a problem as the unrighteousness in the world that we're trying to solve. Let's pause on that point. We're going to pick up more of the dialogue on the other side here as we're visiting with David Kinneman. David is the president of the Barna Group, an internationally recognized research and communications company. George Barna has been a guest on this program many times down through the years. David is co-author of a new book called Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're irrelevance and extreme. We'll continue our conversation on how to learn and counter all of that as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
So how do we deal with, quite frankly, living in an outright hostile culture towards Christians and people of faith and that sense that we have become suddenly, well, frankly, irrelevant and extreme in the views of some? And part of the challenge, of course, here is uh, changing attitudes. And I think perhaps our uh, guest tonight would agree that the most critical attitude regarding such matters that needs to be changed, in fact, the only one that we really ultimately have any control over is our own. David Kinneman is the president of the Barna Group and co-author of Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme. Let's talk about attitudes, and particularly those of us, I think, that challenge or feel challenged by all of this, David, and yet um, sometimes take the self-righteous position that, well, they're the ones that fall, not me. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest challenges uh, that people have today in the church. And my dad is a lifelong pastor, has this great line that Jesus is just as concerned about our self-righteousness in the church as he is about the unrighteousness in the world. And I think that's um, that's a very apt statement. And so, um, you know, when you look in the, in the New Testament, uh, Paul is primarily concerned, if not almost exclusively concerned about the faithfulness of the of of the church um you know in revelation where john's writing about uh his his revelation of jesus in the early chapters about the the seven churches in in um in asia minor modern day turkey he basically says you know the the faithfulness of those seven church bodies in those different communities in philadelphia and pergamum and um you know ephesus that that the faithfulness of those churches is the thing that will change culture uh in so many ways in so many words. So I think this is one of the, the key things that we tried to do with our project was to, to say to, to Christians, there's a way to live with good faith, even when society thinks that we're irrelevant and extreme, um, that there's a way for us to have these difficult conversations when it looks at we're trying to help our, our, our kids and our grandkids and our millennial, you know, teenagers and youth to try to understand what it means to live faithfully, that there's there's a way to do this. And we, we actually think that, that we can approach this very challenging, contentious culture with with joy, with Jesus' love in our hearts, with uh, the truth in, from Scripture, not not watering down uh, the truth of Scripture, and so that's really a lot of the things that we were trying to do was to help people have those difficult conversations in their in their churches and in their families. Part of the challenge here too is we talk about changing the dialogue here, changing attitudes and viewpoint. I mean, historically, and I, I think we've seen this over even uh, the last many election cycles, where as people of faith have been kind of drawn into the political arena, we see much of what needs to be done in terms of uh, resolving moral issues and societal problems is just that. They are problems to be solved, as opposed to what would be, I think, uniquely Christ's take on all of this, and that is that these are people in need of a Savior. They're, they're, they're people that are walking apart from God that don't know Him personally. They may have problems, to be sure, but the goal here, ultimately, the powerful approach is not going to be to simply try to be problem-focused, but rather relationship-focused. Focus, no? Yeah, absolutely. And and we make the argument in the project that, you know, it's not just issues to be solved, but people to be loved. And and we love them. We lead with our love. Love is the preeminent virtue. I think a lot of times Christians worry about loving people too much that it might somehow condone the wrong behaviors or wrong perspectives. Uh, but love never works that way as we read in Scripture. And it doesn't mean that we, um, you know, condone people's behaviors. But there's a certain degree to which, you know, when we understand how love works and how the counter cultural truth of scripture and i don't want to underestimate that it's truth and grace 
that that love really is is part of what we're trying to call people to. So in, in the book, we basically make the argument that, that that good faith works when we love people as Jesus does at cost to ourselves, that we trust the countercultural truths of Scripture, and then we live that out by bringing the you know restoration into the brokenness of people's lives. So you know, a lot of times I think people struggle because when we love people well, we're actually trying to restore them to God's original intent as a generous person, as a person of joy and faith. Um, and, and a lot of times uh, their their own brokenness has brought them to a place where they can't really experience that. And so our love through Christ actually helps to restore them to that original intent that Jesus has for them. So it's not becoming wishy-washy when it comes to our morals or what we believe in. In fact, in some respects, it might be strengthening that because one of the big arguments that I often hear from people that are not of faith that say, oh, you Christians, you know, you, you talk a good game, but try to engage in dialogue and you can't even give an articulate reason uh, of what you believe, let alone why you believe it. So it, it's not a matter of, of letting go or compromising our beliefs, but maybe in some ways, David, learning more about them and then being able to, uh, with clarity, as well as a, a sense of, of self-confidence, engage in a non-defensive faction, a fashion and giving reasons for our faith? Absolutely. And, you know, just to give you a little bit of like what caused us to write this book, which I think answers that question that you're you're asking is, you know, we I have a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, an 11-year-old, two girls and a boy. Uh, my co-author, Gabe Lyons, also has teenagers. We're in our mid-40s or early 40s, 42. And um, giving, I'm aging myself here as we talk. <laughs> I'm 42 years old. And, and, you know, so we kind of thought about like, what do we do to help our own kids in an era when it's not just enough to have the right answer, you know, like the apologetic, you know, handbook and you kind of look up and it's, you know, here's the answer to that particular theological problem or apologetic question. That's still important, but the question is how do we live and how do we um, understand this very skeptical culture, this exile, this modern day exile that we're kind of living in, and then how do we live that out? And so what motivated us to to write this this book, um, along with the data that we collected on behalf of this project and the problems, the pressure that Christian community is feeling was really our own our own experience with our kids about trying to give them confidence that Christianity actually does matter. It is it does answer the questions of a complicated age. Your you know their peers, their their millennial peers who are increasingly living a spiritual but not Christian life need to understand the importance of Jesus in their lives. And so we were we were really trying to fortify our own children to give them. Uh, confidence that that Christianity is going to matter in their in their lives again for some of those difficult conversations that they are going to face. Is it important to, in your opinion, uh, David, and based on the research that we that we give the other side a chance to hear them out, at least to hear their heart? And I ask that question because so often, as I've watched uh, a Christian in dialogue with another believer or non-believer, that they they seem to be concentrating not on what's being said or the heart of the individual, but rather ready to pounce with a response or an answer answer or a counterpoint. Um, And the irony is if you sit down and talk to the average person out there who was not an individual of faith and kind of, I find, dig down into what motivates them, what drives them, that while some of the ultimate opinions that they hold or moral positions that they may have, we might find, uh, you know, in the range from, uh, you know, disappointing to outright disgust. Yet oftentimes we, we can find at least some nuggets that while perhaps misinformed, it, 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 at least there's something genuine in there that, that, that maybe we can use as a starting point to engage in dialogue. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head, and it's really one of the purposes for the book was to try to give people an understanding of the heart behind opposing opposing viewpoints behind someone who would have a very different point of view. Uh, to try to understand that you see these individuals as people first, not as arguments to be won or issues to be solved, but as as we said earlier, as people to be loved. And um, you know, Jesus has this incredible countercultural way. I mean, he's the hardest, uh, the most sort of uh, you, you know, uh, difficult in his conversations with uh, with religious insiders, and he's the most compassionate towards people who have a very different point of view. Um, you know, towards women, towards sinners, towards individuals who would would seem to be at odds with his you know very message. And um, and I think that's that's so important for us as Christians today is to to realize that um, you know think of the last time someone came to your door and knocked and really persuaded you by uh, you know argumentation about the you know. Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or someone who came maybe to evangelize, and it's just like we're never persuaded in that way. Um, you know, they're looking for people who aren't really settled in their beliefs. They're looking for people who can be persuaded. And I think sometimes we end up looking at everyone as like a target. And Jesus asks us to be evangelistic, to go and make disciples, but not to go look, you know, to go target hunting. And I think that's an important distinction to really see the friendships, the heart behind people who disagree, the fact that we can love people, even if they never dis- never end up agreeing with us in this earthly life. Again, we want to try to pray for them and to talk about, you know, the, the, the truth is Christ and, and as he's changed our own lives. But, but again, changing the metric of success from simply getting someone converted uh, to really becoming really deep friends that, that, you know, we're able to say Jesus has changed our lives. Could he, could he, in fact, change your life? And even deeper still, oftentimes I think the approach is we're simply trying to win the argument. Um, as opposed to win somebody for Christ or or, or love them uh, in a fashion that while, yes, we know ultimately we, we have a concern for their soul, and yet uh, first and foremost uh, to demonstrate uh, the love that God showed for us, that so we understand, uh, to a degree at least, the amazing thing that has been done, that through Christ's work on the cross, we might be forgiven. And so empowered with that knowledge and understanding to go and to do, and as David points out not to see people as problems that need to be solved, but rather as people to be loved. And some wonderful insights inside the pages of this new book. Again, the book newly published by Baker. You'll find it at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it online. Go to simply goodfaithbook.org. That's goodfaithbook.org. Dot O-R-G. And our thanks to David Kinneman, the author of this book and president of the Barna Group, for being with us tonight. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It was a number of years ago, traveling into China, when I first very clearly and distinctively became aware of the international problem of human trafficking. You know, we think of slavery and things of this sort from an American perspective, largely based on America's experience with the issue of slavery back in the 1800s. It was an eye-opening, startling experience for me to come to the realization that human trafficking is very much alive all over the world today, even taking place here in the United States. And it it takes place in, in many fashions for a lot of different reasons. In China, walking along a street in a major city of the South one day and seeing a number of young girls, some of whom had obvious limbs missing, had been maimed, perhaps, I thought, in an accident of some sort. And in talking with 
A missionary friend and interpreter began to inquire about the alarming number of young ladies that I saw on this particular street that seemed to have uh, a missing arm or a missing hand, something of this nature. And I inquired as to why this was, feeling it was kind of unusual. He went on to explain to me that, well, these are cast-offs. These are young girls who had been kidnapped from their home villages, brought into major cities, and sold as sex slaves, largely the tourist trade. And on occasions, these young girls would fail to cooperate, would perhaps try to uh, turn their captors into the authorities, and so as retribution, they would typically cut off an arm or a hand to maim them in one fashion or another as a means of defiguring them, making them less desirable, handicapping their ability to earn a living, and ultimately punishing them for not being cooperative with the sex traffickers. That opened my eyes to what has become a global problem. And as we talk about this topic today, I'm joined by Sean Litton. Sean is Vice President of Field Operations on behalf of International Justice Missions. They direct casework operations around the world in places from Latin America to Africa, South Asia, and Southeast Asia, developing intervention strategies and advocating with local and national authorities to address the problem of human trafficking around the globe. And Sean, great to have you on the program today. Craig, it's wonderful to be with you. Thank you. That experience that I had in China a number of years ago, I sadly have come to discover, was not a unique and rare one, but in fact is taking place in more and more places around the globe today, even in so-called developed nations. Tell us why. Well, uh, the main problem, as we see it, is in uh, countries where the laws against these crimes are not enforced at all. In other words... The traffickers, the criminals, the pimps who are uh, uh, selling these children have no fear of any sanction, no fear of any repercussion, no fear of any negative consequences, and so they engage in this practice with impunity, despite the fact that in almost every country uh, today, it's against the law. It's against the law to sell children for sex. And yet, in spite of that, of course, we see the sex trafficking trade uh, growing pretty significantly. Of course, we've perhaps caught a special or two of what goes on in in places such as uh, parts of Southeast Asia um, and countries that we're all too familiar with, Thailand, for example. And as this sex trafficking trade is is growing and developing, um, talk to us a bit about, number one, how girls get even pulled into all of this and and why it seemingly is being allowed allowed to flourish in some countries. Right. So the children that get involved typically um, are migrating. So they're, they're, they're from very poor and impoverished areas. And someone comes to their village, somebody from their same ethnic group, uh, they generally refer to them as an auntie. Um, they come to the village, maybe they're from the village or a nearby village, and they, they say, tell their parents, you know, I can help your daughter find a good job in the city. The daughter feels a debt of gratitude to her parents uh, in many of these cultures, and and she's obligated to care for them. And so she wants to help her parents, so she'll go with this auntie. And and then the auntie, uh, it turns out, is a trafficker. And rather than give her a good job or take care of her, this young woman will be sold into a brothel. And once there, um, she's she's locked away. She's, She's kept from going for help, but even if she could go for help, usually she doesn't speak the local language. 
Um, she sees the police coming by the brothel and collecting money every week, so there's really nowhere for her to turn. She has no access to her family. They're from a village up in the hills or far, far away or even in another country in many cases. And she's literally trapped. And then uh, if she refuses to participate, if she refuses to cooperate, they'll deny her food. Um, in many cases, she'll be beaten. She'll be forced to watch, watch pornography. And just over time, they will wear her will down until she submits. She submits herself to this abuse um, that goes on day after day after day after day. And these girls, Sean, literally get trapped into this scenario. They're far away from home. They're embarrassed about the circumstances that have taken place. And quite often, those that are engaged in the sex trafficking threaten these girls and their families, don't they? Absolutely, yes. And so, you know, the trafficker will tell the girl, I paid good money for you. And if, if you don't cooperate, then, you know, I will find your family. Or there'll, there'll be stories of girls who have attempted to run away only to be brought back and killed in front of the other girls to frighten them into submission and cooperation. It's pretty horrifically manipulative, isn't it? I mean, aside from the horror of what they're drawing these young girls into, quite often, as you suggest, uh, they are trying to better their station in life, maybe move from a village into the city with the hope and promise of earning more money to take care of their family. Maybe there's somebody in the family that's ill. They need uh, money because of a medical expenses, things of this sort. We've even seen cases of human sex trafficking taking place where women and men sometimes are being lured with promises of, of immigration into the United States, and if you come over, we'll help uh, pay your way and get you into the country, things of this sort, only to find out that once they arrive here, not having any contacts, having no command of the language, suddenly they're being forced into sex slavery. Exactly, yeah, and they have you know their their passport if they had one's been taken away so they're in the country illegally and they feel there's nowhere to turn if they go to the authorities they'll be arrested for you know illegal immigration We've seen the stories, as I mentioned earlier, coming out of places like Thailand, the Philippines, other so-called even uh, uh, sex tourism destinations. And certainly I think there's a growing sense of awareness of the problem uh, globally. But I'm curious, Sean, based on your years of involvement with international justice missions, I understand you, in fact, came out of private practice in your own law firm to be involved in this ministry organization. Are we hearing more of these stories simply because the reporting is getting better, or are we hearing more of these stories because the horrificness of this crime is on the increase? It's hard to say exactly. There certainly is a great deal uh, more reporting and a great deal of it, more attention being uh, focused on this issue. But at the same time, what you have is massive economic migration happening um, as people in more and poorer countries move towards those who are more wealthy, where there's more jobs, and this is a this is part of globalization. It's part of a global phenomena. At, at the same time, more and more roads are getting into these villages, you know, that have been formerly isolated and safe, and by their isolation, and so then the traffickers have access to more and more. Uh, people to to move into the sex trade. So it's a combination of, of both greater attention on the issue and, again, I, I do think that's expanding as the process of globalization and the process of economic migration uh, increases. Talk to us a bit about the role that 
international justice missions is taking in not only addressing increased awareness of this, uh, creating a more hostile environment for those in, engaged in the trafficking, in the slavery end of, of all of this, but then, too, uh, the hope that your organization is providing and helping to get these women, and sometimes men, out of this terrible lifestyle. Right. So when in our offices, so for example, I worked in an office in Thailand, also an office in the Philippines. So we'll do investigations and we have undercover investigators that will go out and locate these establishments that are selling children for sex. We'll document the identity of those children, the identity of the individuals that are selling them. Um, we'll We'll bring that back. We have a team of lawyers that will review it. We'll write a report, and then we'll go to the local authorities and, the, and advocate with the authorities. And the evidence that we bring, of the it's a violation of law, but now they have such strong evidence of it that they can't deny it's happening. And so we'll push them and push them until they take action. And then the, the, the object there is to ensure that the girls are rescued and that the individuals that were exploiting them are brought to justice. So... There's an arrest, uh, criminal prosecution of the traffickers and the pimps and the brothel owners, hopefully leading to conviction, a, a sentence in prison. And then for the girls, we have teams of social workers that work with them and different um, homes. We call them aftercare homes, working on dealing with the uh, consequences of the abuse, both in terms of their emotional health, their spiritual health, and trying to find out whether they can return home, whether that's a viable option, if not, what would be a viable life option for them and giving them education and skills so that they can have a have new life. Oh, so there's just a multiplicity of levels that need to be addressed. And when we come back, I want to talk a bit about what's happening in terms of government involvement to try to deal with this, where the judicial system is, both here stateside and internationally. And most importantly, what the church, the body of Christ can be doing in partnering with and cooperating with organizations like International Justice Missions um, to help not only raise awareness, but also provide a way out for so many women all over the globe that have been caught up in human trafficking. I'm Craig Roberts here in tune with Lifeline. A brief time out. Back to more of our conversation with Sean Litton, Vice President Field Operations for International Justice Missions, as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special guest, Sean Litton. Sean is Vice President of Field Operations with International Justice Missions. You can get more information, by the way, on the organization online at IJM.org. That's IJM.org. We're talking about the plight of human trafficking around the globe. And, you know, it's interesting because so often when we think of slavery, we put it contextually in America, historically into what happened here in the United States and many parts of the globe back in the 1800s. And it seems to be somewhat satisfying to think that we've dealt with the issue here at home and therefore it's no longer a problem. It's no longer our problem. But is it? Well, it is, in fact, at many levels. Not only does it continue to be a global problem, but in fact, in many respects, it's our problem, both in terms of the fact that many of these women that are being kidnapped or given promises of a new life in America brought here to be engaged, and they find out later, in the sex trade and then literally end up getting trapped in that lifestyle with no avenue to turn and here illegally, fearful of seeking out any assistance from police or the authorities. And then moreover, 
growing numbers of people who travel abroad to engage in so-called sex tourism. It's a sad, sad state of affairs, and yet one that is um, reporting perhaps gets a better awareness increases is something that all of us need to be more educated upon and do something to bring justice to these people. Sean Litton is with us. And Sean, let's talk a bit about um, the problem, whether it goes from um, sexual assault, bonded labor. I mean, there's a variety of reasons why this kind of human trafficking is taking place. And as we suggest, it's not just a problem in the West. It's a problem uh, globally. Even the continent of Africa, we're seeing this take place. Yeah, it is a global uh, phenomenon, and it's it's important to understand that when we talk about human trafficking, we're not just talking about sex, sexual slavery or sex trafficking. It's any type of for, uh, labor without consent. We're basically talking about slavery. It takes many different forms. So it could be working on a cocoa plantation in West Africa or working on a fishing boat, forced little boys forced to work in a fishing boat in Ghana, or you know, it could be young girls in brothels in Southeast Asia or um, people working in a brick kiln or a rice mill or a rock quarry in India. So it takes many different forms, but it's all slavery. Even we've seen uh, recent increased awareness of the so-called uh, blood diamond trade, too. Mm, yeah, that's another area where anytime you know there's a, a lack of law enforcement and a permissive atmosphere where people need labor, it's always going to, you know, slave labor is always cheaper, right? But if there's no law enforcement, then there's no reason for the people um, who own the facility to, to pay. So they can just trick people into it. There's a plentiful supply of people who are desperate for work. This is a problem taking place at many tiers in the West, in the developed nations, in developing nations, and one that I think needs to be dealt with at a variety of levels. Talk to us a bit about the role, and uniquely, that IJM is playing in all of this. Well, the first thing that we're doing is, is in the places where we're working, in Southeast Asia, and in India, and in Africa, and Latin America, we're basically shining a, a, a flashlight right on the issue, but at, a lot of people will say there's terrible trafficking, but to actually go in, to work undercover, to actually document the situation, to show exactly how it's happening, and then to collaborate with the local justice authorities to take action, to take action against the perpetrators and to ensure the rescue and restoration of the victims. But that's not enough. It's just not enough to rescue um, rescue the girls. You've got to do something that prevents other girls, other young women, other people from experiencing this abuse. In order for that to happen, there needs to be a reliable deterrent. There has to be an end to impunity. And so we work with in building the capacity and the will of the local justice system to actually enforce the law and extend the protection of the law um, to all to all the vulnerable young women in the in the area so that you know the, the brothel owners um, move away from from working with women against their will from from trafficking and young children is this casual or are there degrees where it's highly organized and coordinated I, I ask that question because there seems to be so many layers of this web that's taking place to you know kidnap women in one part of the world, manage to escond them and get them into countries like the United States, and then get them into a system over here, it would seem to me that at certain levels, uh, Sean, this isn't very casual, but in fact, highly organized. Yeah. So it's 
true that it, there's a full range. So, for example, in the United States, it is highly organized. You're dealing with or, organized crime. Same thing in Eastern Europe. In Asia, there are places where the criminals are highly organized. In other places, it's it's just a simple brothel that's being run by, you know, a, a local businessman, et cetera, a local pimp. Um, in in terms of the the labor trafficking, it could just actually be the regular business practice of that area is that you you trick people into working in your brick kiln or your rice mill, and then you you hold them there, and you never let them leave, and you and you pay them just enough to buy enough food to live, and it's a regular business practice. So it it's not it's not even seen as a crime, even though it's against the law. I know that your organization has been successful at creating creating some pretty successful pilot programs in certain parts of the world. I know specifically in Metro Cebu in the Philippines over the last several years, uh, you in working with local authorities and spreading out throughout the region uh, have been successful, I understand, Sean, in seeing a reduction in child sex trafficking of nearly 80%? Yeah, that's true. so in that in that case, um, it was a pilot project, and there was a uh, a measurement taken by a group of international criminologists to get a, a level of what was the level of abuse happening in the city, and then we instituted our program, basically increasing the capacity of law enforcement, the capacity of local prosecution, the judiciary, working with aftercare facilities to increase the level of services going to victims and. And then uh, three years later, when they came back and did another measurement to see the effect of the arrests and the rescues and all the rehabilitation, they found 80% fewer girls being exploited in the city and in the metropolitan area, and 75% fewer establishments that had any children at all. It It was a pretty amazing result. In addition to not only reducing the atmosphere that, that allows this typically to, to flourish, providing victim relief, aftercare, uh, accountability then to, for the perpetrators of all of this, um, long-term transformation, do you get the sense that we're starting to make some headway and moving in the right direction? Absolutely. In the Philippines, for example, so after we instituted that project and the government saw the results, they came to us and said, can you help us on a national level? And and the, the the key issue with all these projects is, are they sustainable? In other words, unless it's the government itself doing it, no organization like IJM or any other organization can sustain it on their own. But in this case, the Philippines took the model in Cebu and is now replicating it throughout the country with their own money, their own resources. They're setting up new police units. They're expediting the prosecution of trafficking cases. They're increasing the capacity of the aftercare systems. The government's doing this on their own. And so we're seeing the ripple effect of just one model of showing how, how it can work to increase the, 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 the enforcement of the law can reduce the problem. And now it's being replicated throughout the entire country. And then the other countries where we're working, we're seeing the same effect that gradually it's happening at a, a slower rate. But gradually um, as people see the results they they want they want to put more energy into it and of course your organization is helping to spearhead a lot of this educate folks and, and toward that end we mentioned the fact that you are in town speaking at a conference dealing with this very issue if uh, ultimately Sean folks want to find out more about how they can get involved in partnering with IJM to make a difference and the role that the church needs to be playing quite frankly from the, the standpoint of our justice obligation what kind of resources are available through the IJM website toward that end 
Well, the the website is by far the best place to start. There's also um, a an app you can download if you have a smartphone. Um, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Um, there's a, there's a book called Good News About a Justice that you can find you know through through the website or or through a um, a bookseller. Um, that kind of lays the foundation for what we're doing, what the biblical foundation is for seeking justice for the poor and the oppressed. Um, you can become a freedom partner. You can support the organization financially. You can pay for the rescue that the poor cannot afford to buy for themselves. Um, you can sign up to receive our uh, upcoming holiday gift catalog. You can give the gift of rescue to people. And uh, most importantly, and what I'd love for people to do, is join us as prayer partners. Um, you can do that through the website, and then you'll get updates on kind of where we're working, the obstacles we're running against, up against, and you can help us through prayer. You can actually pray for these operations that we're trying to get done to rescue these people. Absolutely. But ultimately, we want to encourage folks to not only get educated, get involved prayerfully, but get behind supporting the organization. They're working in countries uh, globally um, on a variety of continents. We mentioned Latin America, Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia. You can get more information again online at IJM. That's for International Justice Missions, IJM.org. And Sean Litton, Vice President, Field Operations for International Justice Missions, we appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Craig. It's been a pleasure. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.